Well, what a fitting song for us to sing this morning as we are going to be jumping in together to a book that so greatly displays the, the majesty, the wonder, and certainly the sovereignty of God. This morning, I would invite each of you, uh, take your copy of God's word with me and open up to Jonah chapter 4. And as you are turning there, I, I was reminded this week of something that happened a, a number of years ago. Now, if you are familiar at all with Grace Community Church, many of you are familiar with the pastor teacher there, John MacArthur. And of course, with MacArthur, you are going to also be familiar with the many controversies that follow him. Now, these are not controversies brought about by scandals. These are not controversies brought about by failure in the role of leadership. But they are often controversies that arise because of his unapologetic boldness in the pulpit. In fact, one such controversy came about in January of 2021. And this happened as people began to respond to MacArthur's opening session of Shepherds Conference 2021. Now, in his opening session, MacArthur began by talking about religious freedom and the government and how the two interact with one another. And as he spoke upon this topic, he at one point stated the following quote, religious freedom is what sends people to hell. Religious freedom is what sends people to hell. Now, many who heard this quote as it was ripped out of context were outraged by what he said, and they immediately began attacking him as somebody who was hard-headed, not gracious, and not willing to partner with others for the sake of religious freedom. But within the context of the message that he was bringing as he kicked off Shepherds Conference 2021, the statement was profound. It was an incredible statement because what MacArthur was saying is that Christians should never partner with false religions, even if it is for the sake of encouraging religious freedom within the country. The reason he said this is because he wanted to encourage everybody who was listening and preparing for that conference that we need to rest in the sovereignty of our Lord and of our Savior. We are not to get distracted by side issues, but we need to remain faithful to what the Lord has called us to, which is the faithful proclamation of the gospel and the raising up and training of disciples. His point was that God is in control. If the Lord desires for religious freedom to abound, it will. If he desires that for his glory and for our good, that we would experience trials of various kinds, we will. That was his point. No matter the schemes of man, the will of God shall always come to pass. For the sovereignty of God is surely greater than the greatest desires or efforts of any man. MacArthur shared this message that 
every believer must not only hear, but must embrace that the will of God will always prevail. Now, in an age of digital media, we are bombarded every single day with tragedies around the world. Bombings in the Middle East, corruption in our own government, or even violent tragedies in our own state. And it's safe to say that each of these things on their own could leave you asking, God, why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to take place? Brothers and sisters, this morning, it's my goal to convince you. God is in control. God is sovereign over everything. But this isn't my only goal. No, not only should we be convinced of the sovereign control of the Lord, but also this morning as we engage one last time in the story of the sovereignty of God as told through the life of Jonah, we get this chance to not only believe that God is in control, but we get a glimpse into how we interact with the will of God. How are we called to view and act in response? Now, I know it's been quite some time since we have been in the book of Jonah together. In fact, it was last November of 2021 when we were here together. And so I very briefly, as I'm sure you are very familiar with the story, very briefly wanted to just show you how did we get to where we are now here in chapter four and where are we going? Now, we see that the story of Jonah begins in chapter one, actually, as it's going to end, focusing on a conversation between two parties. We have Jonah, the very disobedient prophet, and then we have the Lord. Now, Jonah hears the word of the Lord very clearly, telling him, go to Nineveh, proclaim this message. And Jonah says, no, I'm going to run this way. I'm going to run in the opposite direction, away from what you have called me to do, Lord. This leads Jonah to leaving Joppa on a ship that is bound for Tarshish. And when he is on the water, surrounded by unbelieving sailors, their ship is struck by a divinely appointed storm. A storm that is so great, it leads them to figuring out who is responsible for this storm, Jonah. And then casting him into the sea at Jonah's own request. We then see Jonah is drowning. He is clinging on for dear life as he is being crushed by the waves. And the Lord graciously appoints this great fish to save him. Jonah is swallowed whole and he stays in the belly of that great fish where Jonah himself experiences a great revival. Great repentance takes place, and he commits to following the Lord. And so the Lord then causes the fish to vomit Jonah back up onto shore, likely back in Joppa where he got on the boat to start. And then Jonah's long journey through the desert begins. He goes from Joppa all the way to Nineveh, and as he gets there, He walks in and begins to finally preach the message that the Lord told him to. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. We then see something drastic, which is the repentance of the whole of Nineveh. 
from the great king in his throne room to the lowliest of peasants on the street. There is a complete revival of this town. And now, as I mentioned, this story comes full circle as we are once again faced with two characters, with Jonah and the Lord once again locked in an intense dialogue. And it's there that I'm going to invite you to follow along with me as we read Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God. And merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left hand from their right and also much cattle? This morning, as as we jump back into Jonah, we see that he is on his way out of Nineveh. Now, we know that Nineveh was one of the evilest nations in all of human history. They were wicked beyond belief. But we see that they have turned to the Lord, and for at least a time, the Lord is gracious in staying his hand of judgment. The prophet's mission that the Lord gave him has been a huge success, absolute, incredible success. And so how would we imagine this would leave the prophet? I would imagine it would leave him with great joy in his heart. To be truly ecstatic that the mission God had called him to had been absolutely successful beyond his wildest imagination. But that's not what we see. 
Instead, what we see through Jonah's response is that the divine actions of the Lord have not aligned with the desires of Jonah's own heart. Though you might think at this point in his life, Jonah would have a clear understanding that that the sovereignty of God is always going to be above and more important than the desires of man. For whatever reason, after all he's experienced, this still hasn't sunk in. Apparently, in the time that Jonah traveled through the desert from Joppa to Nineveh, saw the restoration or in repentance of an entire people, he's forgotten somehow. Apparently, he has forgot that he himself is not the author of this story. He is merely a character who is meant to draw glory to God. This morning, as we walk together through this final chapter in the story of Jonah, we are going to see this interaction between the Lord and Jonah, which is divided into two main portions. And it's in each of these portions that we start to get a little bit of a sneak peek into what happens when the desires of man and the sovereignty of God collide with one another. So first, in in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, I would say that we see this, that when the desires of man and the sovereignty of God collide, our response reveals our heart. Now, as this section begins, we start with the phrase, but it greatly displeased Jonah. Of course, here the the it that is being referred to is that great revival, the greatest revival that has ever taken place. That is what irked Jonah. That is what upset Jonah. As we mentioned earlier, the expected response of Jonah should be joy. Total, absolute, utter joy. That should be his response. This revival should have left Jonah weeping with happiness, knowing that every single man, woman, and child has been spared the wrath that they deserved. He should have been celebrating the grace that they had received. We know that Jonah was no stranger to the grace of God. We've seen that over and over in this story. He's become all too familiar with God's gracious character, but he's unwilling to rejoice in the grace that the Lord has extended to others. Here we could liken the response of Jonah to the displeasure and frustration of the Pharisees in the time of Jesus. Those who were all too willing to harshly impose and expand upon the letter of of the law of the Lord, but were unwilling to embrace the grace and mercy that Christ explained and expected. We see that like the Pharisees, Jonah's response absolutely reveals his heart. No doubt about it. And unfortunately, it's it's a heart that is unwilling to let go of his own agendas It is a heart that is unwilling to let go of his own desires. 
He's not willing to submit to the sovereign decree of the Lord. In fact, what we see here in verses 1 through 5 are three distinct ways in which Jonah's outrage and his disgust are made evident. First, in in verse 1, quite simply, we see that Jonah raises his voice to the Lord. How? In anger. He cries out, he prays to the Lord, not in thanksgiving, but anger. And this is where something that we're going to see all throughout Jonah chapter 4 begins, and that is an incredible amount of irony. Jonah's disposition now is described as exceedingly displeased or angry. And if this were to be translated literally, it would say, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned him. Evil and terrible in the mind of Jonah is the mercy that Yahweh has shown to these people. And there's such irony in that phrase, he was angry, Because the literal word is defined as being hot, burning, becoming kindled. And why it's ironic is because Jonah has no idea how hot he's about to get in verse 8. He has no idea. Jonah is furious. He is angry at Yahweh for what he has done. He's angry that his own will has not prevailed. Despite the greatest desires of Jonah's heart, the people of Nineveh were saved. Second, in verses 2 through 4, we see that Jonah tries to justify his past and present sin by blaming God. He does not take responsibility. He instead passes the blame on to God. He explains why it is he didn't want to come and bring this message of salvation to Nineveh. He didn't want to come to these wicked people because he knew God's character. No doubt as Jonah reflects upon the character of the Lord, he is referencing here what we would know in Exodus 34 verses 6 through 7. Whereas the Lord passes before Moses, it says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. No doubt here, Jonah was well aware of God's character as he reflects on the first part of this passage. But I also have no doubt in my mind that Jonah was only hoping for the second part of that passage. He did not want the mercy of Yahweh to be upon the people, but instead he wanted the just judgment of God and judgment alone. Jonah is saying here, see, Lord, I knew what you would do. I knew that you would save these unworthy people. This is why I've been so disobedient, God, because I knew what you would do. 
This is why I fled from you and tried to get on that boat and get as far from you as I could, because I know who you are. Still, Jonah turns, and instead of accepting responsibility, he tries to blame the gracious character of the Lord for his actions. Though God's will has already come to pass, Jonah continues to voice his opposition. And so much so that his anger seems to come to a boiling point as he bursts out and says, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. We can't pass this by because what happens here is that Jonah in his pride, assumes that he knows what is best, even better than the Lord. And in this instance, Jonah dramatically says it would be better for him to die. Yet to the prideful response, the Lord does not reply in rage, but he simply says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Though we as the audience could easily say, no, he has no right to be angry. Doesn't he understand how the Lord has provided for him? Doesn't he understand what his role is to be in this situation? Jonah can't give that response of, no, Lord, I have no right to be angry. This question here is intended to give Jonah pause, to cause him to reflect upon the state of his heart. And it does just that. But third, after the refusal of Jonah to answer the Lord's question, we see another indicator of his outrage. And that's found in verse 5, where we see that Jonah left Nineveh before his mission had been accomplished. Jonah was meant to go through the whole of Nineveh, proclaiming that message of the coming judgment of the Lord. But we know from Jonah 3 that the journey across Nineveh was three days. Yet we see Jonah traveled in only one day before he proclaimed that message. And that's the only time in which we hear he proclaimed that message. It seems that once his message was proclaimed, once Jonah had done the bare minimum, he leaves town. Now, in reflecting upon why this is such a big deal, uh, James Montgomery Boyce states, Jonah quit. He abandoned his mission. He had no right or instruction by God to do so. When the people responded in faith, Jonah should have stayed and taught them more perfectly, becoming a Calvin to Nineveh as the great Protestant reformer was blessed to the city of Geneva. Jonah leaves Nineveh when he could have stayed and continued instructing the people. But instead, Jonah is true to form. He flees as he has done over and over and over. And now he goes to the east of the city. And it's here where we see at the end of verse 5 that Jonah constructs for himself a booth. And in his state of anger, 
We're going to see irony jump in here again. Jonah constructs what would be constructed at the Feast of Tabernacles. It is a booth that was meant to remind the person of God's great grace and mercy and faithfulness and covenant promise to Israel. Yet Jonah is constructing the same type of structure out of anger and frustration to the Lord. Something meant to symbolize joy is done by Jonah with such great anger. And as the scene concludes, Jonah now simply sits and he is stewing in his anger. And he's just sitting, waiting to see what is going to happen to Nineveh. Now, today, if if when church ended, you pulled out your phone or you grabbed your laptop, you could go to just about any single web platform and search engine and you could type in the key phrase churches that and you would get a long long list filling in that blank of churches that and and some of them many of them are going to be great things right you're going to see churches that have small groups churches that serve the community churches that faithfully proclaim the gospel But unfortunately, as we know in our current culture, you're going to see just as many results that are going to break your heart. Churches that affirm LGBTQ. Churches that teach critical race theory. Churches that perform same-sex weddings. Churches that meet in stadiums. These results have become more and more common as local churches have become more worried about the response of the culture around them rather than the divine will and decree of the Lord. For them, when the word of God comes face to face with their own desires, they show that their desires, the approval of the community around them, is truly the God that they actually worship. Just as the local church has has been clearly presented with the sovereign will of God, so was Jonah. Jonah could and should have responded with great joy and celebration to the work of the Lord, with an opportunity to partner in the work that the Lord had set before him. But his response to the will of the Lord reveals the true nature of his own heart. And unfortunately for the prophet Jonah, his heart is one that desires the pursuit of his own sin. He was faced with the sovereign will of God and decided his way was better. When we are faced with the will and the actions of the one true God, what is our response, I wonder? When the will of God is shown to us, do we rejoice for the opportunity to align our desires with what God has called us to do? Will we put to death our flesh every single day as we desire and love to pursue and serve our king? Or are we outraged by his call? Are we outraged by his very will as it is revealed to us? 
This is the first thing that we see happens when the desires of man collide with the sovereign will of the Lord. That it reveals the heart of man. Second, though, in Jonah chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, we're going to see now that when the desires of man and the sovereignty of God collide, the Lord's response instructs our hearts. The Lord's response instructs our hearts. As we arrive at the second half of this chapter, we are going to clearly see that the Lord uses verses 6 through 11 as a a type of object lesson for Jonah. And it's through this object lesson that God will once and for all show and explain his total sovereignty to the readers and to Jonah. And he does this in three distinct ways. First, we see in verse 6, the Lord provides Jonah with a temporary comfort. We saw, though, in in verse 5, Jonah came, he erected the booth to give himself some shade, but, but it seems it wasn't sufficient to give him enough comfort as the sun was beating down upon him. And so the Lord appoints a plant to spring up over in the east of the city where Jonah is to provide him with some relief. But then we see the Lord is going to appoint a few other things that change that situation for him. But what's so important here is that we again just see the sovereign hand of the Lord at work, just as God called Jonah to go, just as God appointed a storm, just as God appointed a fish, just as God caused Nineveh to return to him. Now he has caused this plant to grow. Though we're not sure exactly what this plant was that grew up to cover Jonah, we think it may have been something like a castor oil plant, something that shoots up quickly in the heat, does very well in the heat, and provides a great amount of shade for disobedient prophets. But what we see then second in verses 7 through 8 is that after providing temporary comfort, the Lord takes his comfort away. Just as the Lord appointed the plant to grow, he has now yet again appointed a worm to destroy the plant that he has given to Jonah for great comfort. And what's interesting here is that because of the great comfort that Jonah has just experienced, the discomfort is even more striking to him. The prophet was in such a good mood for the first time. Right? We see in verse 6, this is the first time in the whole book of Jonah that Jonah is described as exceedingly glad. And it's because he has shade from a plant. Now in an instant, his elation has turned to despair. A small worm attacks the source of shade and destroys it. But, but the Lord isn't done here. He wants to make sure that Jonah gets this message. And so not only does he destroy the plant, he appoints a strong wind to cause him discomfort. And this is no ordinary wind. This is no light breeze. This is a Sirocco wind. 
This is blown in off the Arabian desert at times reaching over 100 degrees and hurricane speeds. The Lord in his providence has taken Jonah from the highest of highs and now he has brought him low to display his sovereign hand. Jonah once again expresses his displeasure and frustration with the Lord as he has not been shy about doing. He says, it is better for me to die than to live. This stubborn prophet shows his arrogance again. Here claiming to know better than the Lord. And it seems though the Lord has used this object lesson to convince Jonah. Jonah hasn't got the picture. Even though God has clearly shown him in an instant, I can bring comfort. I can bring calamity. Jonah's still not willing to submit to the sovereign will of the Lord. So then third, what we see in verses 9 through 11 is that the Lord, knowing his object lesson has not been understood, he graciously explains it to Jonah. He unpacks for Jonah the purpose of these events that have just taken place. And where the Lord begins is Jonah's great gladness. He mentions Jonah has become quite attached to a plant, a plant that brought him temporary gladness. And in a short time, we see Jonah grew quite fond of this plant because of the comfort it gave him. In fact, we see he is so attached to this plant, one that he had no part in planting, no part in cultivating, no part in keeping alive, that when it dies, Jonah pitied the plant. Or actually, when we say pity here, it's better understood as he had great compassion upon this plant. Ironically, it turns out the prophet who has seemed compassionless is able to show compassion. But it's only to things that benefit him. Yet in this moment, what is so incredible is that when the Lord could have scolded Jonah and had every right to scold Jonah, he doesn't. Instead, in his great love, God explains to Jonah, Jonah, my child, if you had such compassion on this small plant, this, this small plant that you did not plant, you did not cultivate, you did not protect. How much more compassion should I have for Nineveh? These are the ones that, Jonah, I, I formed while they were still in their mother's wombs. Jonah, these are the ones who, who I not only created, but I sustained them every single day of their lives. Jonah, you have compassion for this plant that you didn't create. Should I not have compassion on those whom I have created and love? In his commentary on Jonah, John MacArthur points out something very interesting in this passage here. And that is, as this passage concludes, and we haven't noted that there are over 120,000 people who did not know their left hand from their right hand. 
Now, MacArthur takes the stance that this is actually simply referencing the young children that are in Nineveh. So let that sink in for a moment. 120,000 young children. That means that if we were to factor in men and women as well, we are looking at over 600,000 people that the Lord has decided to show mercy to. And of course, much cattle. In what is uh, perhaps their, their most popular song, a song entitled, Where Were You?, the band Ghost Ship reminds us of a conversation that takes place between Job and the Lord in Job 38. And this song begins as, as Job's interaction with the Lord does, where Job is repeatedly asking why, 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 asking about what has taken place in his life, what he is viewing around him. Why, Lord, is this taking place? Then as the song progresses, the listener goes from focusing on Job to focusing on the response of the Lord. And for almost the entire remainder of the song, line upon line, it starts with the phrase, where were you? Asking Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when its measurements were determined, Job? Were you the one who laid the cornerstone? Were you there when the morning stars sang together and shined out in glory? Are you the one who determined the boundaries of the sea and shut it in? And on and on it continues. Through this whole exchange, the Lord does not provide Job with an explanation for why the things have taken place that have. For he, the Lord, is not required to do so. But what he does through this exchange is show Job that in this moment that what is required of him is to trust the Lord. No matter the situations around him, he is to trust in the Lord and to submit to the sovereign hand. In Jonah 4, 9 through 11, the Lord had every right to say to Jonah, Jonah, where were you? Where were you? For as we know, what, what right? has the molded to speak to the molder. Instead, what we see is great instruction and compassion from the creator and sustainer to this flight-prone prophet. He responds to Jonah. And in his great love, the Lord explains to him so that he might instruct his heart In this instance, in the life of Jonah, and every instance, brothers and sisters, in the life of the believer, we are reminded that the response and actions of the Lord always result in the instruction of our heart. But not only that, it results in the good of those whom he loves and has called his own. For us as believers... We must hold fast to the certainty that whatever the Lord is doing in our lives is ultimately for our good as defined by our God. In the time of Jonah, the Lord responded audibly to him. Yet in our day now, the Lord speaks to us through his living and abiding word. 
he speaks to us and instructs us even when we are in the midst of a perceived trial. If we are suffering or going through tests and trials as a result of our own sinfulness, we find instruction in God's word. We're told in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, that if we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful to forgive us. Or if the trials have simply been brought about not as a result of our sinfulness, but because the Lord desires to grow us, to teach us, and simply because it is his will, we are reminded of passages we learn from, such as the ones we learned from last week. James 1, 2 through 4, we're reminded that we count it joy when we experience trials. Why? Because it produces steadfastness. Or Romans 5, 3 through 5, we rejoice in suffering because what does it produce? Endurance, character, hope. So second this morning, we have seen that, that when the desire of man and the sovereignty of God collide, it is going to instruct our hearts. As we come to the conclusion of our time observing the life of the prophet Jonah, we've seen the sovereignty, the mercy, the grace of the Lord spectacularly displayed. Specifically this morning, as we look at what happens when man's desires and God's sovereignty come together, we saw first that it reveals our hearts, and second, that God's response instructs our hearts. But as we conclude, I want us to think for a moment of, of something that would be very familiar to us, and that is uh, in November, every four years, something kind of important happens in our country. Right? We're, we're talking about the presidential election here in the United States. Now, of course, when those results from the election come in, some of us are going to be happier than others in this country. And, and something that happens each year without fail or each four years without fail, is, is on some social media platform, you're going to start seeing posts pop up before and after the election. And one of those common posts is usually a picture of something quite regal. Usually it's a, a bald eagle flying over a great river. Uh, and it has a caption that reads, no matter the result of the election, God is still on his throne. And why this, this is so interesting is because for some people, this is such an agitating post. Because they don't view it as what's actually said. They view it as a toothless platitude, as an excuse for not being active enough in a political party, just saying, well, whatever happens, happens. But even though that's the way people will at times interpret this quote, it doesn't negate what the words actually mean. The Lord is certainly still on his throne. Nothing can stand in the way of the will of the Lord. Not the desires or wills of a president or a political system or any man. Nothing. In this life, brothers and sisters, the actions of the Lord are not always going to bring us the shade of the plant. Sometimes his actions and wills cause us to come to terms with the heat of the day. 
Our desires are not always going to align with God's actions. But the question is, in that day, how will we respond? Will we respond as Jonah did, where he cried out in anger, where he blamed God for his own actions, and where he simply abandoned his post? Is that how we are going to respond, or or will we respond in submission? Will we forsake our own desires, knowing that, that what God has foreordained to take place will take place? And it will bring him glory. And it will be for our good. Will we not just deal with it, but will we rejoice when the will of the Lord is shown to us in his word? Will we celebrate as Jonah should have at the repentance of the people of Nineveh? Will we look at the will of the Lord as a burden upon our lives or as a blessing? Something that causes us to conform more and more to the image of Christ. As we leave here this morning, may we be comforted. May we be encouraged. May we be motivated. Knowing that no matter what is taking place in our lives today, it is for the glory of God. For our good as defined by him. And may we indeed proclaim... He is on his throne. For brothers and sisters, God is in control. Let's close our time together in prayer.